Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever, whenever, and Defence Bank offers competitive products and services tailored for ADF members and defence spouses. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Well, welcome, Marg, to the Military Wife Life podcast. Thank you, Beth. Good to be here. Can we start off by talking about where your interest in military families and their well-being came from? I had two uncles that served in Vietnam, and so I guess I was really aware, even as a child, how their service affected the families. Why did you decide to focus your PhD on two to five-year-olds and, I guess, their understanding and experience when a parent's deployed? Yeah, it was really serendipitous. I had originally intended on doing my PhD on dance in early childhood, but in the meantime, while I was sort of just getting my proposal together, I was approached by a colleague, Madeleine Foster who had been asked by another couple of military families to get some resources together to help their children cope with what happens in a family when a parent deploys and just some of the issues and responses that, that the children were having and having difficulty understanding the concepts like how long a parent was away for when they, they are still struggling to understand time themselves and just managing the emotional responses they were having when their parent worked away. So once I did that, she organized very helpfully a couple of interviews with me with the families and I found it really interesting talking to the non-deployed parent and so I went away and thought I wonder what's been written about this and it was a big surprise because there wasn't actually a lot of people that had worked with the children and there wasn't a lot of research in general at that stage. Can you maybe talk about your surprise in the fact that there wasn't a lot of research in this area? I mean parents being deployed and going away and being separated and working in defence and having Having the commitments of being a defence member is not a new thing. Kids yeah. have been coping with this for decades, but it's just like we sort of keep going over and over. Every parent deals with it, they get through it, and then they kind of move on and nothing's really done to sort of further improve that area for kids or for parents. Yeah, so I was surprised in general that there wasn't a lot of Australian research. Uh, there has been quite a bit of research in the US, but it's generally been, if it's with young children, it's, it's been looking at it from a psychological deficit perspective, meaning that they're not looking at what I was really interested in was the signs of resilience and the ways parents were building resilience in their children and the ways children were accessing supports and finding ways to cope. So look, I was surprised, but then in the US, they are giving quite a bit of money for research and in Australia, that is a lot less. There was a little bit of research coming out of um, the UK that is increasing but I was surprised that no one had thought to talk to the children themselves and find out what they understand and what they experience when their parent deploys. That had surprised me. And then eventually they sort of revealed, the parents revealed to me and the educators that there just really wasn't any resources and they were feeling really isolated because of that. So that all really surprised me. I really thought that it would be a, an area that would have, I don't know, captured interest of researchers or been seen as something 
something that was really important. I, I was really surprised. Yeah, because of course, when you can improve the experience of the children, the parents, the family overall, that then just goes towards the ADF member being able to go forward and do their job 100% without having to worry about what is going on at home or what they're going to face when they come back and transition back into the home. It's only going to stand to benefit the whole of the ADF and the whole picture. Yeah, that's right. And most people who leave the ADF cite family reasons. And so, you know, if you think about the bigger picture, that's really bad for that individual family. But as an organisation, they're losing really good people because of those challenges with military life. And that costs a lot of money for the defence out of their budget and for Australia in general. And it's something that I really would have thought some more early intervention type money would have gone into this in the past but it doesn't seem to have, or it has, but not so much for this age group. I guess this age group, the the two to five-year-old age group that I focus on has not been looked at to any great extent, and I'm not sure why. Would it be the case that getting it right at that age group is really important for their overall experience going through other age groups? Absolutely. So just with the general population, so not with defence, if the government spends a dollar to intervene and to make sure we get it right with children when they're young, that money is paid off in a huge amount with the economy because those children generally go on to do really well in school. They don't necessarily need as many supports in school once they're of school age and teenage age, they're more likely to finish education. They're more likely to go on and get a job and function well in society and need less social services and they're more likely to get a job that they stay in and pay taxes in. So the benefit for the whole community when money is spent in early childhood is huge. So the same would have to be for early childhood. So if we get the resources there for the young children, it's not that we want to ignore the primary school age and the high school age children. It's just that it's a really important area to focus our attention on. How did you go about conducting your research? So basically, it started initially with interviewing three different families from three different bases in three different geographical states. And that was good because it just gave me a little bit of variety with the data and with the families. So basically, I interviewed the parents. I did meet the children, but I was focused at that stage just on meeting the parents and finding out a little bit more. So I always worked with the non-deployed parent, except in one of those families cases where the parents had eventually left the ADF. When I initially met the non-ADF parent, the partner was still very much employed and then eventually they decided for family reasons again to leave. And so then I was able to talk with the person who had been in the ADF before. So that was really good just to give me some starting data and to help me to realise some of the themes that are happening in these families, give me a little bit of background information. And then I moved on and I actually went and collected data for 20 days. So there were 20 full early childhood care days in an early childhood service that was situated on a defence base. And in that service, I worked with two to five-year-old children and I collected data using the mosaic approach. And so it basically is very practical and it's used for young children because they're generally um, not able to explain perhaps in paragraphs or they're not able to write us a few sentences about what they're going through, but they may be able to respond using little bits of information, having a chat with them, maybe doing some drawing or some painting, doing 
doing some a puppet play and role play, acting out what's happening at home. And then they're able to do some play activities and, and I could observe those as well. So it was all very much art-based activities, but they were in response to some books I'd written. And so I'd read a book first that was about a military family and a parent going away, perhaps, or some of the things that, that happen in their family during that deployment cycle. And then that would lead on to a discussion about what was happening in their family and some sort of art-based activity. So that's how the data was chosen. And then I used that in a way to create themes that came out of the data. And I would verify the children's responses with parents and with educators to say, look, you know, the child drew this or the child took a photo because they also had disposable cameras. And I'm just wondering what that means. So that the child and the parent and the educator were all able to help me collate that information into themes. And then from those themes, I was able to look at the literature and, and go from there and see how it related to what been studied before with defence families and what was new. What did your research find? Some of the responses that the children had really fitted with other research findings from other countries and a little bit of research that had been done in Australia. I also found a lot of protective factors in the families and they were things that helped them survive during stressful times during deployment and family transitions. So those protective factors that they were able to gain were through supports that they had by the family friends, um, the community, social media, and even the ADF, and definitely the educators. The educators were a real source of support for these children. I also found that communications between the family members was a source of comfort. So being able to say at that stage, it was Skype that, that they were using. Sometimes they would do FaceTime videos, depending on where they were. Sometimes if it was a deployment within Australia, they were able to do FaceTime and then email and things like that. But I also found that with the family, it was a source of comfort, but it also had challenges that were related to things like the time differences of where they were and other factors like the child might have been quite happy playing with their blocks and they didn't really want to come and Skype that time and how that sort of played out within the relationships. Yeah, the attention span of two to five-year-olds. <laughs> Did any of the findings surprise you or confirm what you may have already been thinking? Yeah, I guess the responses of the children, they were no surprise because it was really quite evident in the literature how the children responded. What surprised me, well, there was two things really, the level of resilience of the families that, I mean, I was expecting it. You sort of hear the stoic military family cited, but I guess when you were face-to-face with these families, you really realised how strong and how resilient they were and really how exhausted they were, That especially the parent at home and how hard it was for them to cope. So that came through really strongly. But the protective factors were interesting. The other thing that surprised me was the use of narratives and how the families were using those to prepare the child for the deployment. So the little narratives were something like daddy's in Afghanistan, daddy went on a plane, mummy can't go to Afghanistan and I can't go to Afghanistan or something like daddy's gone on deployment, he's coming back after Sarah's birthday or something like that. Just a little half a sentence of phrase, whatever the child was up to and able to remember, that really helped the child because adults in general, like educators and other people say, oh, where's mum or where's dad? And they were able to cite this now 
narrative that the parent had come up with them and taught, and that really helped them. The children that didn't have a narrative really struggled to come up with some sort of response, and it was a bit overwhelming for them. But the children who the parents had really prepared that with them, whether it was unconscious or or a very conscious effort, those children seemed to be able to cope a lot better when they were asked questions hard for parents in this situation because it's not like they're given a manual and this is the best way to do it or this is what your child needs during this time. We just kind of all have to figure it out. But by doing research and having some foundations and some background to what some of the best approaches might be or what from an early childhood education perspective, what the basis could be to handling situations like that, it can only get better. That's right. What we're trying to do was to try and collate a lot of the tips that parents had. And and a lot of the parents said, look, I found this that works, but they were quite different things what each parent said, because of course, each child and each individual family is very different and the age of the child. If they can be collated in some way, it means that parents and educators have some different ideas and some different strategies to use with children because different things will work. The other thing I found surprising was the activities that we were doing, you know, that I was doing with the children over the 20 days meant that I got some responses from parents and from educators that said, look, the child is now able to verbalize what's happening. And they were able to attribute why they were feeling sad. So instead of just whinging and whining and crying and emotional outbursts, they were able to say, still cry, but they say, I'm crying because dad's just gone away or I'm crying because I'm missing mum or whatever it was. And that really helped in that situation because if you've just got a child who's just having this enormous emotional outburst, it's a lot easier if they're able to let you know what's happening. So I guess I was trying to, with the activities, build their language and being able to help them attribute their feelings to different scenarios that might happen in their family. Yeah, and every outburst is not directly related to dad or mum being away, but the heightened emotions that might come with whatever's happening on the day-to-day might be heightened because of the emotions that they are going through or what's going on at home. Yeah, that's right. It's easy to sort of to say, oh, look, you know, everything that they do (laughs) is attributed to the missing their parent, but of course that can't be the case. But there is that definite, the cup's full, the cup's full, and any little knock to the cup, any little tiny bump is going to just let that emotion spill out. And often we're surprised surprised when when children have this enormous emotional reaction to something that seemed quite little but it's really that their cup's just full. Nine out of ten defence spouses wish they found out about defence banks sooner. Okay I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning, has cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls and pin change functionality, savings roundups, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Fitbit Pay, Garmin Pay, the list goes on. Oh and if you really want to go to a branch you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. The same can be said for adults when we're going through deployments and separation and all that comes with that. 
we have heightened emotions as well. For kids, two to five-year-olds, they don't even know how to process those emotions sort of thing. So it must be even more extreme for them. That's right. And I guess it all plays into each other if you've got the at-home parent who's at their emotional end because they're tired, the child's not sleeping, they're missing their spouse and all that sort of thing. You know, it's all playing into each other and it makes it harder because, I mean, we're all, we all can be great parents when we're rested and fed <laughs> and everything's going well in the world. But to do that when you're at your wit's end and you're emotionally and physically very tired, it can be really hard. From your research, did you come across any information in regards to the best practice for the parents that you spoke to? Were they starting a month out from deployment to talk to their kids about what's going to happen or did they wait until it happened? Like, was there a best practice that you kind of found worked for the majority of parents? Yeah, there seemed to be a pattern. Um, The ones that seemed to have a bit of time and not all families get much time. I mean, there was a child that didn't have a narrative and they couldn't verbalise what had happened, but what had happened in their family was the parent had been deployed with only two weeks notice. So you can imagine if the rush and, and it's just adults talking and trying to rush through all the things that have got to be put in place for the family for that parent going. And so that child maybe didn't get that time with the parents to talk about the, the changes that were happening. But that's not necessarily because the parents were not doing a good job. It was just that they were placed in this impossible situation with like a warning. But I guess the ones where they were able to do that. I mean, I'll give you an example of one family. The father was sat down with a globe every night and a white god marker and would show on the globe a drawing of, of arrows where he was going to deploy to and talked about the going to the airport to say goodbye and talked about when he'd be coming home and how he'd be coming home back by the plane, talked about who couldn't couldn't go to that place, like that he could go but the mom couldn't go and that the child couldn't go. And this was just repeated over and over each night at bedtime. And I mean, it's just like a dripping tap. Eventually, the, the child really understood. It didn't mean the child wasn't sad and it didn't mean the child didn't have overwhelming tears at times and that the child remembered all the time. But I think it just helped with the whole understanding of what's happening. So ignoring the fact is not going to help the situation. Like you might be saving yourself from some difficult conversations leading up, but in the long run, making it a part of their normal everyday life and something that's going to happen and this is how we're going to get through it. And yeah, it's sort of making it a team effort is is far better than just ignoring the issue and hoping that it just all goes okay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we can all be ostriches with our heads in the sand, but it, it's not really going to help the child. And sometimes we think, oh, look, the child's too young to understand. But in actual fact, you know, when suddenly someone disappears from the house, that's something they do understand. You know, that person that was here every day and gave me lots of love and comfort and affection and put me to bed or gave me cuddles before I went to bed or read me a story or you know and they're suddenly not there that's huge for a child and they mightn't be able to verbalize that but they certainly know that something's changed and they also can feel when the stress levels in the house go up because suddenly the person that's left at home has to do a lot more so just that preparation and and it doesn't matter if they don't understand every word but it's really important that you spent that time explaining it and not just explaining 
at once, <laughs> explaining it lots of different times. And I think that can really help. So knowing what you know now from your research, do you have any key bits of advice for parents of two to five-year-olds experiencing deployment or separation? Look, I can only pass on the advice that the parents gave me with what they found was helpful. And for them, it worked for their children, but it may not work for every child. And I have collated those um, if your listeners want to Google article in the conversation, and it's called How to Support Children Whose Parents Work Away for Long Periods. And that does list quite a few of the strategies that parents found useful. Some of the little tips they found was that a child is upset and saying they're missing their parent or is just upset, you can ask them to draw a picture of what they'd like to do with that parent if they were to come home or when they're to come home. And then they'd have a basket up on the kitchen bench or, you know, somewhere in the house for each child. And the child would put the drawings in the basket. And then when the parent came back home, the parent can go through the drawings with the child and say, okay, I can see that you wanted to go to the park with me. I can see that you want to go for a swim. It's not great swimming weather today, but maybe we could do the park this week. So let's work out how we can do that and organizing little trips like that. So I think at the time, you know, it mightn't seem like a big thing to do a drawing, but it really is a planning thing. And it's thinking about as a child, what is it that the child really likes doing with that parent? And what is it that they miss doing with the child? It might be reading five storybooks or something like that, but something meaningful for the child. And I think that really helps. And it, look, it's not about money. It's not, you know, I want dad to go and buy me a present or I want mom to take me to dream world. It's about doing things that are spending time and giving attention to the child and things that make the child feel really valued and worthwhile. And, and that doesn't need to involve money. So you published a recommendations report. Can you talk to us about what was in your recommendations report? After I'd done all the research and findings and all the information from the children and the parents, I looked at the literature and looked at some of the literature around change. And change can be really problematic for children, such as moving house. One of the recommendations I had was that in the child, like if an ADF member has young children and that they have to deploy or that they have to be moved around, that those moves, those relocations for families only happen three times within the child's first 18 years. So really limiting those moves and thinking about that model of just moving kids around and moving families around really nearly, does it really need to be done that way? Is there another way of thinking about how we work with families with children? One of the ones was a big one, which is what we're addressing at the moment with our, our project is that the families really wanted early childhood resources and they wanted programs. They wanted to, to be able to have the, the schools and the early childhood services have some sort of programs and resources that parents and educators could use so that they, they could better support the children and also create peer empathy because a lot of the parents found that when they their child went off into a service that didn't have a lot of defence families. There were issues with a lack of understanding with the peers, which is understandable because a defence family is really quite different to other community families with the types of stresses they 
go through. Another finding was there were no really, not very many resources or, or very little research and resources for families where a parent had returned home, where they had an injury or a mental health condition, or even one who had died during service. So if you're talking about creating resources, it's not an area that people are going to suddenly publish books in because you're talking about a really small percentage of the Australian population. So it's not going to be economically viable to create resources for these families. So what we've done, hopefully, is by getting funding from the Ian Potter Foundation is create a space where we've got a little bit of money to put towards creating resources that will be free and freely available online. And another one was that we wanted to be able to work with the Red Lows, the Regional Education Development Liaison Officers that work for Defence, to be able to make sure that they understand that there is a need there for early childhood resources and that would help the children who are in early childhood services transition well into some of these schools where obviously the wider community is present. So being able to support parents and educators in that transition process by giving them resources that might help with that transition as well. And of course, by doing that, it also helps the wider community have a better understanding of what defence do and and sacrifices that defence families make. And then also then takes their view of defence and defence families and a career in defence into their teenage years. It could have wide ranging flow on effects for defence. Absolutely. And I think if we can build that community capacity to support defence families, that would be a wonderful outcome. I mean, it's not what we're going in to do. We're going in to provide resources and provide programs for these young children. But if we can at the same time increase awareness and increase community support that's a great thing and I think that's really important and I I really do hope that there is a little bit more awareness of what some of these families go through because that sacrifice is not just the person who's deploying and they do sacrifice a lot but it's also the non-deployed spouse and it's also the child or the children and it's also that the community as a whole because while those defense families are operating under stress, it's harder for them to, I guess, reach out and be productive and members of the community where they're giving help because they're in need of support at that time. So the more we support each other, the better that the community is as a whole. Because as you mentioned, ultimately, if it ends up being that the family is not happy within that environment and with that constant change and they end up transitioning out of defence, defence are losing a member that they've put time and money into training and getting to that stage and they're leaving because of the problems that are being created for their family and not solved or not being supported the way that they need to be supported. So ultimately by them not spending the money to provide the support that families need and that kids need, it's costing them money. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you think of it, if you move a family, that family in the previous place would have spent quite a bit of time organising the support organising their education for the children or the childcare or organising medical practitioners, organising community supports, maybe playgroup, which playground they go to, organising groups of friends so that they have that support when the parent deploys. And if you're moving that every two years, the family's really just paying catch up 
for that first six to 12 months, trying to work out like, where do I go to get that? Or where's the library? Or who's the best doctor? Or, or where, where are my friends? They've all just moved because we've all been moved together. So I think if we've got those supports in place, give a family at least six years in a place before you move them again. And I think some of these models that we think, oh, well, that's just the way the military do things. Well, maybe they were set up in a different era and maybe that's not the best model for right now. So another thing I suggested was there was a, an Australian study done about looking at the model of deployment. And the model of deployment seems to be that ADF personnel goes away and trains several times before they go on deployment to get ready for that deployment. You're toing and froing and coming back and forth within that family, causing a lot of disruption to the young children. And then they go away on deployment and then they come back for leave and then they go back if it's a very long deployment and then they come back into the family. And so many of the families just said that toing and froing with very young children was really problematic because you're sort of going through that grieving process when they leave and then re-grieving each time they come back and forth. So it was really problematic. So Pinkham and Pinkham was one of the studies that I cited and it says have a think about not using that model of deployment. So saying that a deployment might be longer or the same amount of time, but those little training episodes before, that's all just done as one package. And that all happens on the way to deployment rather than re-entering the house hold several times and then deploying less often. So having a bit of a longer deployment, but having that happen less often. So not having to cycle through that cycle of deployment as many times within the child's lifetime. And I think then the parents know when the household can prepare for that. And I think the modern military family now, it's often got both parents working. And so to be dealing with all these emotional roller coaster when you've got two careers happening can be really challenging for both parents and it's not just the parent that's at home but it's also the parent that's deployed because everything affects each other in a family and if they can see that the children or hear that the children are still recovering from the last time they went it's all affecting them and affecting their ability to work well as well. So who do your recommendations go to? Like who listens to them and who goes, yep, that's a good idea. Let's go ahead and do some more research about that or let's change that area. My recommendation report was given to the DCO and to Redlows, the Regional Education Development Liaison Officers. Parts of it have been used in education, like educator, early childhood educator, practitioner newsletters and magazines, but it's also been used for applying for funding when we received funding from the Ian Potter Foundation and from the University of New England um, for our current project where we're looking to build early childhood programs for parents and for educators to use with two to five-year-olds to better support them. So that one's called the Early Childhood Defence Programs Project. So where can people find out more information about that program or that project and the outcomes of that project or can they get involved with it? How do they find out more? We're basically looking at creating two free online research-based programs and each of the program will have 10 modules for 
parents and then another 10 for early childhood educators and the programs. So they're not really general teaching or general parenting programs. They're specifically for young children in military families. So for example, it's not about toilet training or working with your child to improve their reading or something like that. It's looking at things that happen in military families, such as deployments, such as relocations, such as maybe a parent coming home with an injury or a mental health condition and looking at those transitions and those issues that the family are then um, needing to deal with. So it's very much targeted for defence families. It wouldn't be relevant for the general community. Now that you're putting those modules together and those programs together, what are you hoping will happen with those? Are you hoping that DCO will take those programs and and promote them to the wider community? Where do you hope that those programs will go and, and what kind of impact they'll have? Yeah, well, they'll be available free. We'll be hosting them on our website, but of course, having the DCO, letting parents know that they're out there, that's great. We will be certainly letting early childhood educators know around the country. You obviously have your findings and your recommendations and now you're doing those programs. Why is it important that we continue to conduct research in this area? I think because really the issue is the well-being of the children because children who do well in early childhood years like the birth up to eight years and the children that thrive during that time are much more likely to go on and have a childhood and teenage years and an adult life that is really flourishing as a person and they're more likely to be well and to lead happy meaningful lives rather than what can go wrong is if they have a really bad early childhood it affects their development and their overall well-being it affects their learning and their general health and their mental health. So if we think about as a society, we've got the ADF who employ about 100,000 people. They're one of our biggest employers in Australia. So that's a lot of families and it's a lot of children over the years that are growing up in these families. So it's really important that we do our best to support them and make sure they go on to do really well. So how can ADF families help you with your research or get involved in some way? There's lots of ways they can get involved. We have at the moment an area on the website at ecdefenseprograms.com. Parents can go in and give us suggestions and we'd love to hear from parents and educators about what they've found that works really well for them when a parent is deployed or when they're relocating or any little tips they can give us that's worked well in their families and any ideas for the programs that they really think need to be covered in there. If there's a particular area of being part of a military family that you think really needs to be discussed in the programs or resources built to help explain that area of military life to children, that would be really helpful. And also any particular types of resources that they want, that would be really helpful because we only know as much as we know, but your listeners are living the life and they may have very young children or they may have got through those very young days of their child's life and they experienced deployment and they may have some wonderful strategies that really worked for them and we'd love to hear. What do you think would be happening in this space if you hadn't have done your research and you weren't focused in on this area? Like what do you envision would have continued to happen in this space if you weren't pushing forward to help and make change? 
I always yeah. think I hope there's someone else out there who who would have stumbled across the gap. But uh, look, I'm I'm really grateful that I did stumble across it. I'm really grateful that I met the parents that I did and I'm really glad that they were able to communicate to me how much they needed the support and and how much they wanted resources and programs for children. One of the findings that's really interesting was that the, the parents said, you know, we want programs, we want the children to do the types of activities that I was doing with the children to help them understand. But not just for those children, but for children in their learning environment or in their classrooms that were not defence families so that they could build empathy because there were stories of older siblings who had gone off to school and there were some but not very many defence children in those schools and the problem had been that some of the peers had said things that were quite upsetting to the children about their parent deploying And there was that lack of empathy and lack of understanding of what these children were going through and what the families as a whole were going through. And so I guess I'm hoping with some of the resources that we're building that they will be able to be used within the learning environment or within the classroom for more than just children from defence families, but for their peers as well. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing in this space. And especially considering this isn't even your lived experience, you're passionate about this because you have your early childhood learning background, but the fact that you've taken it on as an issue and a topic and an area that you want to see improvement and make improvement in is just such an important thing for all of us ADF families. Oh, thank you. I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to hopefully some feedback from your listeners. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 